Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's mental health podcast. I'm Yvette and today I'm going to be chatting to Marsha Rigg. She's the sister of Sean Rigg, a black British musician who lived with schizophrenia and who died in police custody in 2008. We're going to be talking to her about how her brother died and also about the death of George Floyd in America. Well, Sean was my brother. And he was a lovely, lovely, charming, handsome gentleman, boisterous as a child, funny, and very artistic, very well-dressed, and just somebody that you would love. I'm sure it was just somebody that, to know him was to love him. I um, read as well that he was really into music, is that right? So he, um, he was a music producer, is that right? Yes, that's right. So he wrote his own music and produced his own music. Um, but initially, from when he was a teenager, he used to be a dancer. Um, he did, um, at those days, it's when Body Popping first came out. He was about 17. Mm-hmm. And he was in a dance group called TNT. Um, but I didn't really know uh, much about that until after he died. And um, a friend of his, that worked with him with his music, sent me um, some clips, some old footage that uh, I've never seen um, when he was about 17 and dancing uh, with this group and they were fairly international and and very popular at the time. So that was really, really nice to see. Mm. Um, But it's nice to play his music. Um, One day soon I will release his music so people can hear his voice. And he would write write basically about his life and his struggles. And I, I really, really miss him. He, he wanted to be a famous um, rapper and 
sadly, he's now famous as a person that died at the hands of the police. Um, so he lived with schizophrenia. When was he diagnosed with that? And was that a surprise to you or had you known um, that he'd been struggling for a while, um, sort of when he was growing up? Uh, no, Sean um, was first diagnosed with acute paranoia schizophrenia at the age of 20. And he experimented on one single occasion with efficacy. And that's what um, caused um, his mental health issues with schizophrenia. Um, what kind of treatment did he receive for that from the NHS um, initially? He was under the South London and Morsley Health Trust and he was um, treated exactly like anybody else that would be diagnosed with um, schizophrenia. So he was medicated. Um, medication for him was something that most people that suffer with schizophrenia do not like because of the um, side effects. But um, another thing that um, he was very much concerned, concerned about was the um, fact that young black men, and he was one of them that felt that was over-medicated. Medication was a, a type of um, restraint. And mm. he just really wanted to live a normal life. And um, initially, it was difficult for him to accept um, his um, issues. Um, but much later in life, he accepted that. And he lived a very normal life. Most people didn't know that he suffered with mental health. But one mm. of the recurring patterns that he had was that sometimes when he felt really well, occasionally he would not take his medication. And so therefore... Um, he would have relapses. But um, once he was remedicated, he would be very well and he lived a very, very normal life and was popular in his community. I think we should probably move on now to to, ha to the events that led to his death. Um, would you mind recounting for listeners what actually happened? Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sure it must be quite painful to sort of keep talking about it. That's, that's no problem at all. I think um, it's important to, to keep in the public domain what ha actually happened to him mm. because it's now almost obvious that Sean died and there's many people that have suffered the same fate. So basically, Sean was overdue his medication um, for about two months and the mental health team had not informed my family uh, of whom I had a close relationship with. And so on the 21st of August, he was suffering a, a psychotic episode and was very, very vulnerable and unwell. And what Sean needed was to be taken to a place of safety. So the hostel that he was staying in at the in, in Brixton had um, made a number of emergency 999 calls uh, to the police and that also... Um, telephoned his mental health um, team, which was a South London and Maudsley, because where Sean was living was like a halfway house. So he lived a normal life. He was not under any section at, at, at any point or anything like that. So he could come and go as he liked. He had his own front door key. They were unable to get help from the police and or the mental health team where there were no beds available. And so 
after a period of almost three hours, he went onto the streets carrying only his passport with him and some money. He left his keys and he left his phone. He was bare-chested and only wearing white trousers and shoes and very psychotic. We will never know um, what Sean was thinking on that day and where he was going, um, but he was obviously um, very unwell to members of the public on the street. Sean was in and out of traffic. Um, he was making karate stances. Um, he did not attack anybody and nobody was hurt. Um, but he was a danger to himself and could be a danger to the public because he was in and out of traffic. He could have been um, run over um, by a bus or a car or something like that. And so it was very obvious that he was extremely unwell. So members of the public also called the police. Eventually the police arrived. Um, well, he left at about 7.03. He was detained by police at 17, at um, 7.40 p.m., where he was restrained in the prone position, handcuffed to the rear by four police officers. And... Um, it was found at the inquest jury in 2012 that he would have been in this position for a period of approximately eight minutes. And eventually, when the case was reopened as a criminal investigation some years later, um, they reconstructed it and they said that it was seven minutes that he was restrained face down in grass with one of the officers at the neck area and one of the officers um, restraining his feet. They'd removed his passport and his shoes at the arrest scene. And, and one of the other officers was, um, he, he had been obviously searched and, and one of the officers was counting money. The, other, the fourth officer went to get the police vehicle. But there were witnesses to the arrest around about up to 14 witnesses altogether, um, who said that Sean was in the same position, that he was struggling, but not violently. Um, I'm assuming that he would have been struggling to breathe. He was then um, taken up by the officers and assisted to the, a police vehicle and put in the back of a, a vehicle uh, in a caged, the caged area of the van where the officer said that Sean had slipped down to the footwell area. Now, at this point, the officers claimed that Sean was well. They did not recognize he had any mental health issues whatsoever, even uh, notwithstanding the emergency 99 call and also members of the public that had also said that there was a, a gentleman on the street that appeared to be extremely unwell with uh, mental health um, issues. And the officers actually arrested him for theft of his own passport, claiming that they didn't believe it looked like him. But it was him. It was his passport. It had his name in it. And it was an expired passport. He was then driven at speed to Brixton Police Station, where the officers claimed that Sean was upside down on his back, handcuffed to the rear in the footwell area, which is a very small area, spinning 
with his legs up in the air, spinning, uh, uh, with his feet 360 degrees, while they sped back at speed to Brixton Police Station. When he arrived at the station, he was kept in the back of the vehicle for a period of 11 minutes, where the sergeant and the officer claimed that the custody suite was busy and the driver attended to the custody desk and said that there was a violent man at the back of the van. Um, so he arrived at the station at 7.53. At 8.03, Sean was removed from the van, assisted by two officers, where it's captured on CCTV. Um, and we believe, and the inquest jury found, that he would not have been able to make that walk by himself, so he was heavily assisted in a collapsed state. And after a few steps, Sean is arrived at the custody entrance, um, custody suite entrance, where there's a caged area, which is a holding cell in the yard of the station. And Sean is immediately on the floor, clearly unwell. The officers claim that he was faking it and um, asleep, sleeping. Um, they did not recognize or accept that he was unwell. It was a very small area, um, and he was at the feet of five to six police officers where it is captured on CCTV. And at, at one stage, he was put in the recovery position. Shortly after that, he was being propped up against the, the cage holding cell. This is all captured on CCTV. And then he was stood up by the officers. Uh, the officers claimed that he stood up by himself, which would have been extremely difficult, bearing in mind that he had been restrained in that position, face down in grass, with um, excessive and unnecessary force being used on him which was found at the inquest to be factual, including the medical evidence, which showed that there was deep bruising um, at the top left-hand shoulder, at the neck area, and also somebody had taken photographs of that. That's why there's, there's two photographs that you can see online of when the four officers um, put the handcuffs on, which only took about 30 seconds, and four minutes later they took another photograph and Sean was in the same position. So there was a lack of oxygen that would have been going to his brain because of that restraint, and he was further being restrained in the back of the van on the way to the station. He was still handcuffed and uh, in a deleterious um, position, and in 11 minutes in the van, he was still handcuffed, and so this would have also all have restricted his breathing, and so it would have been very difficult for a man who was actively psychotic to be able to stand up himself. And it can be clearly seen on the CCTV that the officers stood him up. He was then let go by the officers where Sean collapsed to his feet and, the, and then he was put in a recovery position. So the officer's evidence is that he was extremely, he was, he was well, he was being violent, he was not suffering mental health issues, and he just suddenly collapsed in police custody, and they didn't know why.
Um, it was by this time it was eight minutes past twelve, where a doctor in the station, a forensic medical examiner, was brought to Sean, who claimed that Sean was having a heart attack and that an ambulance should be called. An emergency ambulance was not actually called until um, almost 8.30 by the custody sergeant and the paramedics, and the ambulance arrived at 8.33, by which time Sean was acetone, and the jury at the inquest found that Sean was dead at 8.24 p.m., because that's when the officers and said that he wasn't breathing, and then they started by 8.25, 8.26, they started to conduct a CPR, and, but the defibrillating machine did not allow um, for there to be any shock because there was no rhythm of the heart. He was then taken um, by paramedics to King's College Hospital, and he was pronounced dead at 9.24 p.m. The rest is history where they followed a investigation by the Independent Police Complaints Commission. I'm so sorry for your loss. I mean, the first thing after hearing all that is just, I'm, I'm just so sad that that happened. But also, I'm really appalled that the police were involved in the situation in the first place. Because if somebody's unwell, you know, I think most of us would assume these days that it would be, um, you know, the NHS that would step in and help out and, you know, treat people um, rather than having the police turn up um, and and something absolutely. like that. Absolutely. that happened. Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Because Sean was actually in a place of safety already mm. uh, at the hostel. And um, there were no beds, which is another um, issue in terms of uh, in, in the mental health where there's mm. no bed anywhere. Uh, one in four people um, suffer with mental health in this country. Mm. And, and it's, it's probably uh, higher than that, much higher than that. And um, somebody that is vulnerable and unwell has no right to be taken to a police station and put into a police cell, particularly yeah. when they're actively psychotic that yeah. will only exacerbate their, their illness and having police officers around them. I mean, I'm sure that my brother would have been extremely frightened being on, left on a cold floor, half naked, um, with five and six police officers standing over him and which, who did absolutely nothing to help him. I'm sure my brother probably said he couldn't breathe at the point of restraint or in the van or in that catered area, um, but the officers claimed that Sean never spoke at all. What the officers should have done is that they should have taken him to a, a hospital. And if they had done that, my brother would probably still be alive today. And rather than receiving the right treatment by taking him to a hospital, he received a death, death sentence by being restrained. How can somebody not recognise that somebody's so actively psychotic when they're in and out of traffic, when they're behaving irrationally and dressed inappropriately, um, following a series of 
999 calls over almost a period of three hours. Number, number six that were made. And also members of the public could also see that he was actively psychotic. Why didn't the police officers recognise that? According to them, that's what they claim anyway. What response have you had from the police, the NHS and the courts about his death? The response that we saw um, during a inquest into the coroner's inquest in 2012. He died in 2008. It wasn't on 2000 until 2012 where we had the coroner's inquest, um, which which we found out how my brother died, and which then followed a criminal investigation um, by the IOPC uh, for the first time. The 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 report by the IPCC that was done in 2010 and the inquest in 2012 was in stark contrast because the IPCC had found that the officers basically had acted exemplary. Um, the officers had not been interviewed for a period of seven months and it was for the family to make a complaint for them to be interviewed. Um, the officers were allowed on the night to um, collectively sit in a room. They had the DPS, basically Scotland Yard. They had solicitors. They had counsellors. They had all of these things. They had three meetings. They had put out a press release, the IPCC, before they even came and told the family that Sean had died. We didn't have access to his body. Um, they, he, an autopsy was conducted before we had identified him. Um, the Home Office pathologist that the, the following morning that conducted the autopsy did not know how Sean died. Um, but when we identified him on the Saturday, two days later, um, there were injuries to Sean um, that we were not told about that, that was found in the autopsy. And when we did go to to identify him, he was behind locked glass door in a room in a body bag um, from the neck down. We've never ever seen Sean's body, and we were horrified when we insisted that we they unbolt the room and we go into the room so we could see the other side of the space. But something was obviously wrong. What were they not telling us? So the initial response for the family was nothing. We got delay after delay after delay. Um, we didn't know what the officers were were actually saying in their statements until weeks before the actual inquest, four years later. Eventually, um, we had the Casali Review, which was an independent um, investigator that investigated the IPCC's original investigation, which found it to be fundamentally flawed and recommended that the case should be reopened as a criminal investigation, which took another a number of years. And we also had a, um, another investigation alongside that criminal um, investigation by the IPCC, and it was a perjury um, investigation by a sergeant who claimed that when Sean had arrived in the station and was kept in the van for 11 minutes. That sergeant claimed that 
he went to the van and looked at Sean. There was nothing wrong with him. He was sitting up. He looked directly into his eyes. Um, but later, we proved um, on CCTV and at the inquest that he did nothing of the sort. And, you know, we had to appeal to the Crown Prosecution Service on two occasions um, for, because they initially found that there was insufficient evidence to convict that sergeant, Sergeant White, um, for perjury. But, um, but there was CCTV evidence that proved that he didn't go and he accepted that he didn't go. But he said that in his mind, he felt that he did go and that he was suffering from memory loss. Eventually, for the first time in the United Kingdom, that uh, the CPS's decision was overturned. Um, it was three officers that went for perjury, but um, he, they overturned and only the sergeant was charged with perjury, and that went for a criminal trial some years later. He was acquitted because, in my opinion, that hearing was a prosecution case, a kangaroo court, because the judge did not tell that criminal jury the facts that were found in the inquest. Eventually, a second file was sent to the Crown Prosecution Service for all of the officers for gross negligence, manslaughter, perjury, um, misconduct and gross misconduct, and perverting the course of justice, um, which took a number of years, and the Crown Prosecution Service said that there was insufficient evidence to charge any of the officers or anything, even though the evidence was compelling. And eventually we had to argue and fight and by judicial review for the officers to to be investigated as a process conduct by the Metropolitan Police, which was nearly 11 years later, 10, 11 years later, where the officers claimed and tried to argue that because the death had happened like 10 years ago, that they could not remember what happened, but even though there was CCTV. So in March, on the 1st of March, 2019, the gross mis misconduct hearing found absolutely no wrongdoing by the police officers, and literally they got away with causing the death of my brother. So what did I get back from the officers, the IPCC, the Crown Prosecution Service? Absolutely nothing. We have not received justice. And apparently, um, we have no other legal avenues. And this year, it is 12 years since Sean died. And they have given me nothing. How did you feel when you learned about George Floyd's death? Um, because obviously, there's a lot of protests about that at the moment. Do you feel that there are similarities between what happened to him um, and your brother? Absolutely, yes. When I first saw the video... The first person, obviously, that I thought about was my brother. And I was mad as hell. Because usually in America, most police, all police officers have um, guns. When somebody dies at the hands of the police in the United States by gunshot, that takes a few seconds. In the United Kingdom, not all officers have guns. So people die in police custody with their using their bare hands, just like what happened to Lloyd, to Floyd, um, sorry, to George Floyd, where it takes a considerable amount of 
minute to choke somebody, either with your arm or your knee or any part of your body. It takes minutes to for somebody to die. That is alarming. And of course, it just brought everything flooding back, flooding back, and flooding back. And not just for me, but for so many other families who I have contact with. And it's devastating because obviously I have not had closure, so and I have not had justice. And so the grief is just perpetuated over and over and over again. When you see cases in the United States, when you see cases in the United Kingdom, because since Sean died, hundreds of people have died. I've met so many other families that have suffered the, the same fate, such as um, Shaney Lewis, for instance, where he was restrained by police inside a mental health hospital, been on the slab by 11 police officers for 45 minutes. Police have no right to be in a hospital restraining somebody in the prone position exactly the way that George died. And that mother cannot watch that video. Most mothers cannot watch that video because it just brings horrific memories of losing their son or their brother. You know, the mother has lost their son in that way and to see that that somebody could be so cold to kill somebody in that matter without a care in the world. And the reason for that is because officers can do that. They can act with impunity without any accountability. How can that be? It's completely immoral. It's completely unhuman. And so they, they know what they're doing. In, in the family's opinion, and I'm sure in the public's opinion, they are do, doing it deliberately because it takes a considerable amount of minutes to choke somebody to the point of death. And you must know that that person could die. How much training does an officer need to know that if you restrain somebody in that manner, they're under control, they're no longer struggling, and if they are struggling, they're obviously struggling to breathe. How much training does somebody know that if you restrain somebody in that position where their airways are restricted, using excessive force with more than one officer, that that person is, could die? How much training do you need for that? You mentioned um, Shaney in there. Um, in 2018, Shaney's law was brought in here. Um, do you think that it's working and do you think it goes far enough? Because it's meant to be basically prevents um, deaths of patients in, in custody or in, in mental health I'd units. I'd like to commend the mother of Shaney Lewis that she had to lose her son in order to get some... She didn't get justice either because nothing happened to the officers. You know, 11 officers restrained him for 45 minutes where he died of positional asphyxiation on that spot. Nothing happened to the officers. And she fought for Shenny's Law, which is fantastic. It's the first of its kind, and internationally as well, I believe it's the first of its kind. But it doesn't go far enough, because Shenny's Law is um, police officers and all mental health nurses cannot restrain people inside 
a mental health institution in that manner. But what about the people that are on the street that are suffering with mental health? Or anybody. It doesn't matter whether they're vulnerable or not. The police are still allowed to restrain somebody in a crown position for up to seven minutes, because that's what was found in the Shawnry case just last year. They found that it was not excessive, even though he died. So that means that an officer can restrain somebody in that position for seven minutes with no recourse. How can that be? I want the eradication of prone restraint and chokeholds in the name of rape laws. That will be my next campaign. It's been difficult at the moment. I've been exhausted and, and you know, tired after 11 years of having to fight every step to find out what my what happened to my brother and to get justice, and nothing happened. But after the death of George Floyd, I'm mad as hell and I'm revived. Do you mind if I ask you, how much of, of this do you think is to do with um, the police and how much is it to do with racism in Britain? And do you think that black and ethnic minority people with mental health issues receive worse treatment than their white counterparts? The evidence is compelling by the admission of the government themselves. Black men particularly are disproportionately affected in mental health institutions and disproportionately affected by deaths in custody by the police. They stop and search and um, death. And the evidence speaks for itself. All it needs is for there to be a political will. The government, the Home Office, must make officers accountable, which means a jail sentence to send a clear message that their agents of the state, meaning the police, mental health nurses, will be made accountable. So at the moment, around the world, we've seen these incredible... Um marches process about George Floyd. Um, are you optimistic about the level of support people are currently showing um, the Black Lives Matter movement? Or are you concerned that it might be a flash in the pan? I think this is the opportune moment for there to be some real change because the world is watching and because of the uprising globally of everybody, not just black people, of everybody of uprising the public's outcry and the public's interest is extremely important because that is what brings change. All it takes is a simple political will to listen to the people and to do the moral thing. And that is to change the systemic failures and patterns within the judicial system so the agents of the state will know that they cannot any longer act with impunity. It's as simple as that. What can listeners who want to support you and your mission to get justice for Sean um, and to generally change sort of the problems that we have at the moment, what can they do? Well, first of all, it's not just Sean. There's many Sean Wiggs and there's many George Floyd, black and white. It's very important for you to know but they, they also kill their own. Black people are just disproportionately affected. There's a coalition of families in this country. We are called the United Families and Friends Campaign. We have been 
peacefully keeping a memorial procession on the last Saturday of October from Trafalgar Square to Downing Street because the UK is not innocent. You know, most of the protesters uh, have been protesting here for America, but they need to look in at home here because there's definitely here too. We want all these people to come peacefully and in remembrance of all the loved ones that have died in the United Kingdom with us, where we will peacefully walk to Downing Street and families, you will meet families and hear their real stories and pain and emotions and the fact that not one single person in this country has ever received justice. You can also go on the United Families and Friends Facebook page or website and donate um, to our, there's a crowdfunder, United Families and Friends campaign, um, UFFC, and donate because the families really are struggling. We get no legal aid automatically, whereas agents of the state get unlimited funding from the public purse for legal cases. So I have no doubt that this country and the taxpayers' purse which cost them millions, if not billions, just in Sean's case alone to get the office results. And we we don't have counselling, we don't have bereavement counselling. The government affords nothing to the family. This is the type of things that families need because we are suffering, we are in pain, and and to mothers especially, it's just it's enough is enough. It's it's enough is enough. Thanks so much, Marsha. I really, really appreciate you chatting. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally If you've been struggling with any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116-123. You can also find them online at samaritans.org. You can find us online. We have a Twitter account, which is at MentallyYRS. And you can also join our lovely Facebook group, which is simply called Mentally Yours. See you next week. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.